You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Uh, we returned to our study in Romans, and I thought this morning before we read our sermon text, it probably should do a review for several reasons. One, uh, I've been away for two weeks. And uh, two, we kind of pulled off alongside of the road in Romans eight thirteen, and we, we hung out there for a couple, I think three weeks, if I recall. Would like to have stayed there longer, but I think we'll save that for another time. And because it's been so long since we've looked at some of the verses that are early in Romans 8, that I thought we should uh, reflect on those very briefly before we come to Romans 14 to 17, which will serve as our text this morning. If you look with me to Romans 8 and verse 1, there you see that these wonderful words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, What an incredible sentence. Uh, I I committed to you to memorize, to meditate on, store it up in your heart. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. And it gets even better as we go through Romans 8, as we're going to see, hopefully by the Lord's grace this morning, we'll see it, that it gets much better. One of the things I want to do this morning as we do this quick review is I want to show you just how prominent the work of the Holy Spirit is in this chapter. If you look at verse 2 with me, here we see the Holy Spirit. Uh, the verse, Paul tells us, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And here we see it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he takes us to Sinai, if you will. Does anybody know what I'm talking about there when I say he takes us to Sinai? And I'm looking for facial expressions because you're not going to raise your hand. Um, Let me explain that. Uh, He takes us to Sinai. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, God gives his people the law through Moses. Does anybody remember where that takes place? It takes place on Sinai. And uh, sometimes you'll hear this expression that the Holy Spirit takes us to Sinai. Or the the old preachers used to ask incumbents, those who wanted to join the church, would sometimes ask them, have you been to Sinai? Now, what were they asking with that question? They were asking simply this, has the, has the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sins? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful and gracious thing for God to give us his law. I mean, his law, you know, we see that it's good, we see that it's gracious, but we see that the law actually reveals what God is like. If you ever want to wonder, what is God like? Well, he's like this. You know, he doesn't lie. He doesn't steal. After all, what could he take that doesn't belong to him? It'd be kind of impossible for you to steal if you owned everything, wouldn't it? So he doesn't steal. He doesn't um, uh, commit adultery of any kind. Uh, adultery is a lack of unfaithfulness. God is completely faithful. We see that phrase steadfast love, the steadfast love all through the Bible, don't we? Many, many times, you know, God's uh, steadfast love. He's completely faithful. And we see this all in the law. God is not going to violate his own law. He's not going to violate those laws that he loves so much that actually describe his very character. Because of this, we can take all of his promises to the bank, can't we? 
He doesn't lie. He's perfectly faithful. He doesn't change. You know, uh, so the law is good. But the problem with the law and it's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with us is that the law cannot the, the law cannot offer any mercy, can it? The law cannot offer any pity. So when we come to the law, we see that the law can only prescribe what is required and it can only uh, judge the performance of, uh, you know, have we kept it or have we not kept it? Um, That becomes a problem, doesn't it? Uh, When the law is given to sinful creatures such as ourselves. So uh, this is what I mean by Sinai. I mean, the Holy Spirit takes us to Sinai and he uh, opens our eyes, convicting us that, uh, that we're sinners. And uh, it doesn't stop there. I mean, the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He can take a person and lead them into conviction of sin and maybe leave them there for a period of time, maybe sometimes for a lengthy period of time, maybe sometimes not for so long of a period of time at all. He works with us all as he sees fit. Uh, But the work of the Holy Spirit isn't just to convict us of our sins. He also works to reveal uh, God's plan of salvation to us. He reveals the gospel to us. He reveals uh, his mercy and his compassion. Or we might put it this way. He reveals his willingness to receive sinners in Christ Jesus, doesn't he? He reveals his willingness to receive. And I've shared with you a leaf out of my own book that you know I remember as the Holy Spirit was working in my life, convicted me of my sins. And there was a period of time where it hadn't quite really been revealed to me that the Lord would receive me. And I've shared with you, I went for a period of about nine months where I knew I needed Jesus. I knew only Jesus could save me. I I knew Jesus could save me, but I just just couldn't think for the life of me why he'd be willing. But you see, this is all the work of the Holy Spirit to show us our need of Jesus and to show us his mercy in Jesus and to show us that, yes, he is willing to receive us. So this is what is often meant when you hear people say, talk about Sinai. So uh, here we see that um, in verses in verse two, that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. Uh, He places us on a a new course where verses three and four will not walk by the ways of the flesh, but by the way of the spirit. If you look at verses three and four with me, uh, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We see the work of the spirit in these two verses, don't we? But I want to point something else out to you just really quickly. We see the work of the whole Trinity in these two verses. We see the work of the father, if you will, in verse three, for God has done. Okay, this is God here. This is the work of the father. How do I know that? Well, because it says that he sent his own son. Who sent the son? The father sends the son. So we have the father sending the son. Uh, the son comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, the son uh, accomplishes salvation for us, doesn't he? And in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There we see the Holy Spirit. We see the work of the whole Trinity there in those two verses, don't we? And if we continue in verses five and six, we see the Holy Spirit again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to what? The spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
And then you remember verses 9 through 11, which we looked at. It's been a few weeks ago now, so I wanted to review this, where we get this mind-boggling truth that God actually dwells in the hearts of of his children. If you look at verses 9 through 11, Paul says, you, who is the you? He's writing to the believers in Rome. These are believers in Rome, and through them, he's writing to us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, in the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, that's a big long phrase, but I want you to pay attention to it. And the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace. You got that? It's a bunch of words, but they've been chosen very carefully. Same covenant of grace. Okay, Old Testament, New Testament, same covenant. In the Old Testament administration, the covenant of grace, God dwelt in the holy of holies, didn't he? Behind a veil in the tabernacle and then behind the curtain in the, in the temple throughout the whole Old Testament administration, the covenant of grace, okay? Now, in the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace, God comes out from the holy place. When Jesus dies on the cross, the veil gets torn in two, doesn't it? God comes out from the holy of holies and comes and takes up a new abode in the very heart of his children. I mean, we hear that all the time, you know, but we pause and think about how remarkable that is. Now, we get to verses 12 and 13. These are going to be more familiar to us because we were there most recently. We find the work of the Holy Spirit again. Look at verse 13 with me. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the what? The Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Spend several weeks on this subject, and really, quite frankly, I would, I would like to spend more time on it. Um, it's a wonderful text, but we need to move on. And that brings us to our sermon text this morning, Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. Um, let's, uh, let's read that. Follow along with me as we read. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have re- received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray and ask the Lord to open these verses to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this review of of Romans 8, which brings us to our text. And Father, we look to you, Father, to refresh our memories, to teach us, to guide us, and to open up the text that we come to this morning, Father, that you would be pleased to open up our minds, instruct us, not just for the sake of instruction, but for the sake of shaping and molding us into the children that you're calling us to be, Father, in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Empower us to these ends, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, in verses 14 to 17, we see the Holy Spirit's 
we see his work again, again, and again. And I use again three times because this is a good old classic three-point sermon. Uh, I use again for each point that we're going to make. It's a simple sermon. Uh, we're led by the Spirit, we're adopted by the Spirit, and we're assured by the Spirit. Um, let's look at the first one first. In verse 14, uh, we see this phrase, led by the Spirit uh, of God. You see, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, of course, the Spirit of God, here's what we've already been talking about. Uh, he is the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, what is meant by led by the Spirit of God? Well, here's where someone might be tempted to say, well, I got this one. I know what this one's all about. Uh, to be led by the Spirit of God is uh, to have his guidance when we're, you know, making those big decisions in life, you know, like uh, who we're going to marry or who we're going to date or what job we're going to take or what vocation we're going to pursue or what college we're going to matric matriculate into. Uh, I got that one. Uh, I think I got that one. Well, um, I'm not a gambler, but I, I would say that I would wager that nine times out of ten when someone reads this phrase, led by the Spirit, there's probably a good chance if they're in the church and been in the church for a while, these are the kind of ideas they're going to get by this phrase, led by the Spirit. You know, the big and even small decision uh, guidance that we talk about so much. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because of the, the extensive influence of the charismatic movement over the last 40 or 50 years. And I don't want to be misunderstood here. Listen, I think being led by the Spirit of God in big decisions and small decisions, good thing. Okay, let me state that. Let everyone understand that. Good thing. Listen, it's good to be led by the Spirit in all the decisions we make. Big decisions, small decisions. But that having been said, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8.14. Now someone will say, well, Rick, why, um, um, why do you say that? Well, I'll give you three reasons. The first one is context. The second one is context. Any guesses as to what the third one is? It's context. Now, um, okay, whether I marry Ethel or Gertrude, it's not part of the context here, is it? What is part of the, what is the context? Well, the immediate context is verse 13. And what is the burden of verse 13? It's not big or small decision guidance. It's putting to death the deeds of the body, isn't it? You see, we can completely miss this thing if we read what we're hearing all the time into the text as we go along. It has, it, 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 it's putting to death the deeds of the body. That's the context here. Uh, killing sin is the context here. Or we might put it another way, which I think is helpful as we plow into verse 14, is holy living. Holiness and living is what's being imported into verse 14. And it's, it, we can clearly see that that subject is being carried into verse 14 in the idea of being led by the Spirit. And as I said in, in our review of Romans 8, it is the Holy Spirit that leads us out of sin by first what? Convicting us of it. He takes us to Sinai, doesn't he? I mean, in our self-righteousness and in our pride, we don't think we're doing so bad until the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. I think I'm doing pretty good. I am to think I'm a very good guy. I'm a great guy. We wouldn't put it that way. At least most of us wouldn't. Some of us might be, but I'm a great guy, you know. 
Then the Holy Spirit comes. Uh-oh, I'm really not such a great guy. Uh, he takes us to Sinai. He leads us out of sin by convicting of it, us of it and showing us uh, the work, the ministry, the mercy and compassion of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's part of the work. Uh, and then he begins to lead us in holy living by guiding us in righteousness. And he always does this by way of his word, through his word. Now, let me pause and make application of that right now. Many of you are keenly aware of this, whether you can put it into these kinds of words or not. And why do I say many of you are keenly aware of it? Because I know you come here for one, you come here for lots of reasons, but I know that one of the reasons you come here on Sunday mornings is you want to hear God's voice, don't you? I've been praying that we will all hear God's voice this morning. That's something that's really important to me. Fundamentally, in my philosophy of ministry, is the importance of hearing God's voice. We hear men's voices all day long. We need to hear God's voice. And we'll hear God's voice by way of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who speaks God's voice into our hearts, isn't he? And as he speaks to us, he leads us. Sometimes he convicts us of something that we're doing. Sometimes he encourages us. He never, you know, he never does it with a heavy hand. If you, if you feel like you're getting browbeaten, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't browbeat anyone. He very gently and lovingly comes alongside his, his children and um, he encourages us. He could convict us. I mean, he encourages us. He fills us with joy. You know, we have seasons of time or different times uh, where we're filled with joy. He does empower us. He enlightens us. And this is what I would submit to you Paul has in mind here. Um, this is the leading or guiding that Paul has in mind. Now, here's an important practical question. How do I know if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit? How do I know if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit? Again, context is very important. What is the context of verse 14? The most immediate context is verse 13, right? And of course, verse 15, which we're going to get to in a minute. But backing up to verse 13, it's putting to death the deeds of the body, isn't it? In other words, it's fighting, it's fighting sin, isn't it? So ask yourself, am I being led by the Holy Spirit? Well, am I fighting sin? And not just fighting sin for the sake of fighting sin, because many people can be fighting sin, and they might be fighting sin because they just don't want to be that kind of person no more. They want to turn over a new leaf. So let's qualify this idea of fighting sin. Are we fighting sin for God's glory? Are we fighting sin because we have recognized what a great thing God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and we want to uh, respond in thanksgiving? Uh, by putting to death the things that offend him, the things that we know displease him? If the answer to that question is yes, you're being led by the Holy Spirit. And that's how Paul can say in, in verse 15 or verse 14, notice he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Are sons. And, and listen, there's probably a footnote in your text there. Um, and you look at the footnote, it'll say, and daughters. Am I correct? If memory serves me right. Sons and daughters. And that leads to the second point. We're led by the Spirit. 
not in a big decision or small decision guidance kind of way, but we're led by the Spirit into holiness, right? Can you see that from the text? Does that make sense? It's not that we don't look to God for big decision guidance and, and small decision guidance. We do. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying we do that. But I'm saying that's not what verse 14 teaches. It's teaching us a different kind of leading, a leading into holiness. And that leads us to the next point I want to make this morning, which is adopted. Uh, we're also adopted by the Spirit. Um, if you look at verse 14 again, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have re- received the spirit of what? Adoption, huh? Adoption is sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I think this is a tremendous truth, but we don't see, you know, a lot of these truths fall flat for a number of different reasons. And I, I think that this truth falls flat today because I think in, in, many, in the minds of many today, it's almost inconceivable that um, all people... You know, the idea that some people would not be a son or daughter of God, I think, is almost inconceivable. In other words, I could put it another way, which I think is clear. Um, In the minds of a lot of people, everyone is a son and daughter of God. You know, as I I talk with people and as I, you know, I've just observed that over and over again. Everybody's a son and daughter of God. So the idea of adoption falls flat. Well, adoption is no big deal. We're all sons and daughters of God. But... That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? You know, Paul teaches us that in our natural state, we're not sons and daughters of God, but we're sons and daughters of disobedience. Keep your place in Romans and look to Ephesians 2. We've been there many times. Uh, This will be very familiar to some of you. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Who's the you here? He's speaking to the believers in Ephesus. And this is what they formerly did. They they were dead and they walked in trespasses and sins following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, notice lowercase, that is now at work in, in who? Sons of disobedience. And of course, there should be a footnote there. I don't know if there is or not in your Bibles, but that would be daughters as well. Sons and daughters of disobedience. Notice Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we see that we have a couple different families here. Um, Jesus says the same thing in the Gospels. If you turn to John chapter 8, you can let go of Ephesians now and go to John chapter 8. You know, uh, he has this conversation with some of the religious leaders that would, you know, this conversation would not fit too well in the mainstream idea of what is, of who Jesus is or who he's believed to be. Um, these leaders could not stand Jesus. They were They were threatened by him and, um, John reveals to us of a plot 
that uh, these leaders had to kill Jesus. And John chapter 8 gives us a graphic look at this. If you look at verse 37, we start there in verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Let me pause right there. Notice Jesus says, my word finds no place in you. This is a powerful diagnostic as to where we are. Does Christ's word find a place in you? Is his word at the center of what you do? Now, you know, there's a Bible in most every home in this country. But is the word of God central to us? I mean, we can have a Bible in the home. We can even have it up on a mantle somewhere, you know. And, you know, is it, is it just... Is it just Something we admire to be sitting up there on the mantle, you know. We got, uh, you know, we got uh, some baby pictures in it, and maybe there's a four-leaf clover in it, and you know, some other keepsakes in it, you know. And there it sits, and we dust it, and we keep it looking really, really good. Uh, if that's all the Bible is, it has no place in our heart. You see, or if we just come on Sunday and we read it, and uh, then, you know, we, we park it somewhere in the house, wherever it goes, and it sits there until Wednesday night or until next Sunday. Does it have a place in our heart? Because you see, Jesus, Jesus says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. We got two different fathers here, don't we? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, oh yeah, if, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41, you are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. See, that's such a powerful diagnostic as we think about adoption. If you are a son or daughter of God, you love the word of God. You love it. It's central in your life. And if it's not central in your life, that's a powerful mark that uh, you've yet to be adopted into the family of God. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. And here we see um, this whole idea. I mean, the idea of universal sonship or universal daughtership is not taught by the Bible. It's taught by the evil one who wants to lull everyone to sleep to think that, hey, all is well. You don't got to do too much. You know, you're headed to heaven. Everything's going to be fine. Now, we're tempted to look at John chapter 8 and say, wow, these are the real bad guys. But, you know, this is emblematic. You can tell as I'm the way I'm exp- expounding on this, that this is emblematic of a fallen human heart here. This is what goes on in the fallen human heart. Why don't people come to Jesus? You tell them all day long, go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. But they don't. And why don't they? And the Bible answers, it's not philosophical. I used to think it was philosophical. I'd go to the store and I'd be, listen, if I could just explain to people what this is, they're just going to love it, you know. Um, It's not philosophical. 
nor is it intellectual. You can't argue someone's way in. You know, I'm going to have the better argument. I'm the smarter guy, and I'm going to win the argument. And gonna... No, you're not. That's not going to work. It's a moral issue. John chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. John says in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. When we're born into this world, we commit evil deeds, and we do it because we like it. We like to do it. And whose father, uh, which father's will is being carried out there? Is it God, the father? Or is it the evil one? Very clearly, it's the evil one. So this idea of universal sonship and daughtership is, is so far from being biblical. And that's why Sinai is so important. We've got to go to Sinai to get woke up from that. What do we do? Sinai, we see the law of God. The law of God, when it's received in faith, really rattles us, doesn't it? One of these days, I'm going to be judged, and this is the standard by which I'm going to be judged by, and it's a standard that I can't even begin to uphold. Yeah, you got a problem. You need a Savior. People aren't coming to Jesus because they don't think they need Jesus. That's why they don't come. Well, the good news is that God has sent us what we didn't even realize we needed, and He sent us Jesus. And because of Christ, a simple faith and trust in Christ, you've heard me say many times that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, our sins go to, uh, go to Christ. Christ suffers the penalty of our sins and his righteousness comes to us. And now we're able to stand in God's court. You've heard me say that many times. And we talk about this as justification by faith. But listen, justification by faith is a wonderful doctrine. It is an incredible doctrine. But if we stop at justification by faith, we stop miserably short of the gospel message. And unfortunately, many times we do kind of stop there. We stop miserably short of the gospel message. And someone will say, how does that? How is it that you stop miserably short of the gospel message? Let me give you an illustration. Let me act it out for you. God, the judge, okay, is behind his bench. And you, the sinner, come and you sit in the dock and God judges you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus credited to your account and because your sins have been taken away from Jesus. This is the believer in the dock. And he says, okay, you're, you're, you're acquitted. You're righteous. Verse 1 of Romans 8. There is no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. But it doesn't stop there because God the judge takes his robe off and he comes out from behind his bench and he puts his arm around you and he says, come on, let's go home. And you go to his house and you discover that he has put a plate on the table and he himself has put silverware next to the plate on the table and he has pushed a chair before that plate and that plate, that silverware and that chair is for you. You're in the home. That's the gospel message. You're in the home. You're in the dining area of the home. Jesus says it this way. See, I'm going to go and prepare a place. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. 
so that where I am, you may be as well. If this don't bring a tear to your eye, you haven't reflect on it much. Jesus says this just before he suffers and dies on the cross. And he accomplishes it, doesn't he? This word Abba that you hear so much about at the end of of verse uh, 15. You look at verse 15, you see that word Abba? How many have heard that word before? Abba Father, probably most of us. What does Abba mean? Uh, Many say it means daddy. It's a word that communicates um, intimacy. Um, A lot is made out of that word Abba. And a lot needs to be made out of that word Abba. But there's a word that's in our verse this morning that's actually overshadowed quite a bit by the word Abba. And it's the word cry. I want you to look at verse 15 with me really carefully. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Derek Thomas tells a story about being in Jerusalem. And um, there's, he's witnessing this man who is headed towards the Wailing Wall, and he's very excited to get there. So excited to get there that he forgets that his young boy is unable to keep up with his pace and is falling behind. And as the boy starts to follow, fall behind, he gets scared and he starts crying out, Abba, 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 Abba. And finally, is it, his father hears the loud Abba, recognizes his son's voice and realizes that he's getting lost in the crowd. And as excited as he is, he turns around and he runs to his boy and he embraces him. See the importance of the cry? Derek Thomas says, he writes, when our hearts are filled with terror and alarm, we cry, Abba. Abba, Father. And he hears us. He hears us when we are at our lowest points emotionally and spiritually. Can you think of anything more wonderful and glorious than knowing that your heavenly Father cares about you? End of quote. Now, I'm sure on that day when Derek Thomas saw that young boy crying Abba, there were a lot of other boys there. But only that young boy could cry Abba because... um, of the relationship between the young boy and this father. See, the other young boys, unless they're brothers, uh, they can't say Abba, at least to this man. They'd say Abba to their own father, you see. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you've been adopted as a son and daughter of God. There's a place at the table set for you. There's a chair, there's a plate, there's silverware. You're wanted there, you're cherished there. And when you cry, Abba, he hears you. Isn't that wonderful? So we've been led by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit into holiness, into Christ-likeness. Make sense? We're adopted by the Spirit. It's the, it, you know, the whole work of the Trinity is involved, but the work of adoption is so much the work of the Spirit that Paul would call the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, you know, 
We see the work of the Holy Spirit leading us in holiness. We see the work of the Holy Spirit leading us in adoption. And finally, we're assured by the Holy Spirit. I won't spend much time on this because our time is running short. Um, I'm, I'm not glossing over it because it's of any less importance. It is very important. But if you look at verse 16 with me, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, how are we to understand this? How does the Holy Spirit bear witness with our spirit? And again, I'd like to use Derek Thomas here to help us on this, because I think uh, I, I think he's on to something when he he says this. He says it's in the cry. It's in the cry. There's a lot of things we could say about that. We could say a lot about that, but he says it's in the cry, and here's what he means. Uh, as I've already said, those who are not Christians would rarely call, and I don't think I have said that yet in this message, but uh, um, you'll observe when you talk to people. Many people will talk about God, but how many people talk about God as the Father? There's a whole lot less that will talk about God or mention God as Father. You'll hear people talk about God. In fact, you'll hear this, you'll hear phrases like this, oh God, or oh my God. You'll hear phrases like that all the time in the workplace. You'll hear phrases like that all over the place. But how many times do you hear, oh Father? Think about it. When you hear Heavenly Father or our Father who art in heaven, that's something that you hear from Christians, isn't it? You don't hear that so much in the world. And what Thomas says, he says, quote, in moments of doubt and weakness, the Christian's spirit cries out, Father. The very cry itself is testimony of a work of grace in the heart. Amid troubled waters, a safe haven is discovered in the arms of a listening, waiting, loving, embracing Father. Let me read that to you again. In moments of doubt and weakness, the Christian spirit, that's lowercase s, the Christian spirit, our spirit, okay, cries out, Father. The very cry itself is a testimony of a work of grace in the heart. Why would we do that? Why would you cry out, Father? When everything's a mess and you're coming apart at the seams, why would you cry out, Father? Have you ever done that, by the way? Why did you do that? Well, first of all, you believe a father's there, you believe he's listening to you, and you believe you're a son or daughter, right? That's evidence of a work of grace in your heart. Amid, troubles, amid troubled waters, a safe haven is discovered in the arms of a listening, waiting, loving, embracing father. I think that's helpful. I think that's tremendously helpful. So when we discover we're having all kinds of problems and these things are out of our control, whatever they might be. Sometimes the only thing we can do, we, can't, so we can find ourselves in, in, in situations where we don't even know how to pray. Have you ever been there? It's like, I just don't even know how to, this thing is so twisted and it's such a mess, I don't even know how to pray for it. Father, help me. It's like the little boy at the wailing wall. Father, Abba, 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 Abba. Why would that boy cry that? Because his father's right there. If he hears me, he's going to turn around and come back. It's an act of faith, isn't it? It's something the world doesn't do. 
And in the midst of the act, our spirit is bearing witness to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. We're being led by the Holy Spirit into increased holiness. We've been adopted by the Holy Spirit and we're being assured of all of this by the Holy Spirit. I've got some lyrics I want to share in closing. It's a song I've been playing around with. It's, it's an old Fanny Crosby hymn, but it's been redone by some folks at Sovereign Grace Music. I love this song uh, so much, but the chorus of it goes like this. It's redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through your infinite mercy. And listen to this last line. Your child forever I am. That's closing words. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're leading us and preparing us to take our heavenly home. You're leading us in holiness by way of your Holy Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, he has, a, he has worked that we would be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And we are also being assured by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit bearing testimony with our spirit. And Father, we, we thank you that your children we are forever and ever. Amen and amen.